yes, yes, yes. Welcome to Mont Icons. In this episode, we speak with Dr. Justin Clement, a prolific writer, philosopher, and poet. Justin Clemens is best known for his work on the philosopher Alain Badiou, psychoanalysis, contemporary literature, and art. Dr. Clemens, welcome to Mont. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, we we want to begin with with uh, just a bit of backstory. How, how did you get into philosophy? What, what were you doing in your youth? Were you as troubled as DX and I were? No, that's uh, like it's so boring. It's so I, I thought you might ask me this, and I was trying to. Th- I've been desperately trying to think of interesting things about myself to say, but there there, there aren't any. So I, I, I literally literally had no idea what was happening when I was a teenager. All this stuff happens, right? And then I didn't do anything really, uh, ends up at university. And then uh, the thing actually, and this is, is is kind of like getting on drugs because, you know, I just was reading all this all this shit that was on the, that was set on the course and just hanging out and, and you know, being at uni and getting drunk. And um, I read this, actually a book by uh, this French philosopher who's very famous, Jacques Derrida, like it was the, it's called Plato's Pharmacy. So it's about, it's a rereading of Plato, but just as as if the guy was actually a guy selling you drugs over a counter, like not just any drugs, but state-sanctioned drugs, right? That's what a pharmacist does. Those drugs are official drugs. Anyway, that's the, the that's an interpretation of Plato, which I don't think many people have have, have given before. I, I, and I actually read this story about Plato being a kind of drug official drug seller, and I got high. And I literally was as I was reading this philosophy, I was like. I was, it, it like it was like it was like having a trip. Like I, I swear, I swear, swear this is true. And I just wandered around for two days after that, just going, not even knowing what I was thinking about. I wasn't in the world. Everything was like flashing lights and colours, and just thinking about well. Yeah, everyone's fucking retailing some sort of drug to you, right? You're you're a body. Like Plato's meant to be the guy who takes you from the body up to the the, the heaven of ideas, right? But actually, he's just a guy selling another product to you, and that product's getting you high. And actually, that's what Derrida's just done to me, doing with this. And I'm like, are we all just like taking drugs, man? When we take, <laughs> so not a very particularly profound revelation, but just the fact that yeah, something's happening to your body. And why would you say that this kind of drug is different from this kind of drug? Where, where do you draw the line? Who draws the line? What sort of powers and violences are involved and stuff like that? And that's the sort of thing that I think that was the, the, the first actual uh, kind of experience I had of what philosophy was as, in, as, as opposed to just blah, 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 here's some whatever, something that really affects your life, you mm-hmm. know, where you're like, wow, I don't even know why. I, I'm like, I'm an idiot, right? But that, that, that it had a massive effect on me. So, yeah. And that, and, and that kind of lends itself to the whole continental philosophy thing, right, where it's quite it's yeah. more subjective than analytical philosophy. Is that what drew you to it? It's kind of a bit that, more sensory? Look, that's t- that's absolutely right. But uh, but at the same time, one of the things that I, I liked about whereas analytic philosophy was really, uh, you know, I did, uh, you know, I did do a first year philosophy course and um, I was just completely average at it and it had a, it was completely standard. It was a morals course, so people talking to you about what other people have said about what it means to be moral. I was like completely 
completely dull and unaffected. And the other half was Descartes, which was actually a great le- series of lectures given by this uh, uh, quite quite amazing guy who gave Barry Taylor, would give lectures off the top of his head, would stop, have these kind of spasms and stuff. So it was pretty impressive and it was nice to see. But but the, the the difference was was with the the continentals. It was it was more sensory. It was more linked to the body. But it wasn't any less kind of logical or speculative. It, it brought together your body like ideas, like and at the same time in this in this in this Derrida way that I'm talking about, where it's like now we've got to talk more about the connections. These are not just logical or analytic connections. These are connections which are like hitting you, hurting you, doing something to you. People are doing something to you. How is it being done? How do you talk about what's being done? What can you do about what's being done to you? Is there another way of thinking of getting it? Or are you just in a kind of repetition machine yourself in a, you know, like, so continental philosophy is just much, much bigger in the, in the, in the way that I encountered it. And, and, you know, maybe, I don't know, I, I don't think less rigorous, but definitely has to be, it has to, it has to hit you, right? Like. If we could do, we could pursue the Derrida thing just for a moment, um, did you have any experiences with like street level pharmacists, like yeah. like as in like non academic f- philosophical revelations that you could kind of use to draw out what that experience was like, and what kind of what's the difference between getting yeah. a drug across the counter and getting a drug off the street as far as that stuff goes? Yeah, that's a really good question. One of the and, and you know it's a I think that's a, that's a proper philosophical question, <laughs> right? Because because the thing the thing after like a lot uh, you know after a long time and and going you know why why is Socrates still you know such a figure for for actually world culture in a number of uh, a number of ways is because you know he's in this you know I often say this now because uh, at one stage um you know one of my uh, uh, uh bosses was from Horsham and I was like well, oh not even Horsham a small town outside Horsham which I think is a small town and I was like you know I was like oh you know it doesn't sound like it was very philosophical and he was like yeah Justin but you've got to remember Athens at the time of Socrates was the size of Horsham right mm, so it's wow. a small shitty little place and all of a sudden some guy turns up who's just paralyzing everyone he meets you on the street he's the off the street guy this is exactly i guess part of derrida's point there's plato who's doing it over over the counter he's authorized or at least he's authorized himself he's selling these drugs and are very clear they're all organized all the packets are lined up but actually then there's the street guy who's like who's who was the guy who taught plays oh everything who's socrates who's on the street he just wanders up to you he can happen at any any time right like and then you're in this conversation you couldn't even have imagined what even what what what, 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 what now we're talking about gods you know at gods on the street corner and uh, you know in the dust of the the agora and, and and so on and i think that 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 you know, sorry that to use the word suture and division between the street, the street dispenser, Socrates, and the and the the official one, Plato. They're kind of fused together as well. You can't you can't. They're both really different, and you also you also can't separate them. But when we're you know, so even street people are sometimes already full of full of the state, and sometimes people who you think are just state operatives are really you know a lot more radical than. than yeah, let's pursue this for a moment. I'd like to hear about. Um, I think Diogenes would be a character that people yeah, who listen to this oh, yeah. would be interested to hear about. So let's try and draw him into this little circle. The dog. Like, where, where the does, dog. <laughs> Absolutely. Where does he fit as far as things go? Because like if we could say that um, there's a bit of the, the, the state in, 
in in some of us like there's there was very little of that in him like yeah. he was he was very much like your back alley dealer like yeah but like i'm, I'm almost, fascinated by this too like why do we think that the the street guy or the the obscene or the scandalous is somehow more true than the the guy in the ivory tower like the, preaching preaching at you that's right this, well this is exactly the this is part of the biggest question for all of us mm. right who are you where are you going to get who are you going to talk to and yeah, where's the yeah. authority going to come yeah, from yeah. and is it going to have power and violence behind <laughs> and if so what sort of kind right like and i reckon what you you know what that that's exactly the diogenes problem because uh, you know, Diogenes is one of the students of Socrates as well. He and Plato hate each other, right? Because, of course, Plato's aristocrat goes up and Diogenes lives in a barrel naked, basically, right? And all the stories about him are... are very as, punk. He's very, he's very punk. He starts off, the reason he ends up in Athens is because apparently he and his dad and their hometown were started forging currency and were caught uh, as like counterfeiters and had to be expelled. So he ended up in, the, uh, yeah, in a barrel in Athens, basically. Just as an aside, my favourite crime of all. Counterfeiting Kennedy. currency. Yeah, yep. it's a federal offence, so we we'll, get punished very, very, very harshly. Willem Dafoe plays so. this currency counterfeiter in this yeah. film called *Deliver and Die in LA*. Have you seen that yeah. film? His, um, yeah, he's, he's. It's just portrays that crime very well. Um, but but let's return to Diogenes. No, yeah. but that's a it's a really important crime, isn't it? It since, is. Since like money is when I, a, a a few years ago I was I had to change some money for for a Slovenian philosopher who came out. His surname's Dolar. Like he's, he's he's quite famous. A Slovenian guy called Martin Dolar. If you know who Žižek is, he's kind of best friends of Žižek and so on. He's a great guy. But uh, we're at the the Commonwealth Bank at the time. It must have been actually about fifteen years ago, and they had this uh, sign saying "Turn cents into." dollars i'm like that's why we're here isn't it like <laughs> yes. you know, and he's like fuck you <laughs> like but uh, but that, that's why we had this conversation at the commonwealth bank about dollars and the original the, i was like well do, a dollar was a silver mine in the austro-hungarian empire which the slovenians were i think um you know having to work and oh. so it's kind of a slovenian you know it's a i wouldn't say a slave name but yeah, but it's a surf name you yeah. you you could be it could be you could be the aristocrat or you could be the guy who's just like forced down the mine so then we had where's your money come from what's the best thing you can do is you know, clip this currency, mm, mm. man. Like the a fastly approaching, uh, like redundancy is that kind of crime. Like being able to do that. That's and why they want Bitcoin and crypto, just to make sure that you can't counterfeit it anymore. Yeah, it ruins that potential. It, exactly, and isn't counterfeiting, as you said, isn't it the greatest of all crimes? Like, and since Diogenes started with it, we just need really crypto Diogenes <laughs> yes. to like, you know, yeah. si simulate, synthesize like a, a blockchain ledger. Like, I love this idea. <laughs> there, um, uh, yeah, so where, 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 where were we? Well, we were at the point where Diogenes was um, expelled to Athens oh, from his yeah. crime of, uh, of counterfeiting. Crime of passion. The yeah. crime of passion. And with, <laughs> doing it with your dad as well. It's a family business, right? Yeah, my dad was a counterfeiter. I'm a counterfeiter. <laughs> Little, he, um, uh, yeah, look, you, you must know some of these stories. They're pretty famous, but I, I'm just going to tell them anyway because they're, like, magnificent. Uh, one of them is he's, he's just, like, standing there uh, jerking off, like, um, and which, of course, is, you know, yeah, it's still rude in Athens, right, despite them not being, uh, you know, uptight 
society or whatever, and uh, someone someone upbraids him for it, and he goes, "Ah, oh, look, if only I could assuage my hunger by rub- rubbing my stomach in the same way, I'd do that." Right? This is a body. This is my body. The the, the 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 you know, there's a whole load of them. The best one for me though, which is when uh, Alexander the Great is invading Athens. This is a story, and he's just sitting there reading in the sun. People are dying around him. He's not moving. He's just like now. And uh, now Alexander the Great rides up on his horse. Alexander's been the, the student of Aristotle, right? The other, you know, one of the greatest philosophers of world history, blah, blah, blah. He's been a student. So he's got an appreciation for philosophers, right? So he sees this guy reading in the middle of the, I guess it's a scroll, in the just while, while everyone's dying around him. He's like, oh, it must be a philosopher. I'm, you know, going to go right up and see who he is. So Alexander the Great rides up, you know, looming above, you know, Diogenes on, the, on his horse like shadows covering him or whatever. And uh, and uh, Alexander the Great goes, uh, who are you? And Diogenes goes, I'm, I'm, I'm Diogenes the dog. Who are you? Who the hell are you? And it's like, I'm Alexander the Great. Like, uh, so, mm, goes back to reading. Alexander's, Alexander's like, look, you know, you're very impressive. Ask me anything that you want. You can have it. Diogenes is like out of my light, mate. Like really? I'm trying to read. Like, <laughs> so I know great, great Diogenes story. So I'd really like to hear, like you've you've been obviously exposed to all of the crisis within academia at the moment. Yeah. Um, and I'd like to hear your perspective on 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 how this is going to affect the future of philosophy. Yeah. It's a, it's a big question. It's a it's a big question, but uh, it's weird. Already we seem to be talking about the same same problem from the beginning, this this tension for between the street and the tower, but then even within the street there's the state and even in, within the tower there's the street and nothing's very very clear. But you know, on the on the way here I just uh, I caught a taxi over here and I, I was just talking to the the um taxi driver about about because his, his kids are at university and his, his older son had just tra- changed he'd, he'd been wanting to do do an education degree to, to to be a teacher which which the uh the driver was really really like that's what i want for him and um he decided to do computer science instead and and um and i was like ah oh, i was like that seems still like a pretty good thing to do or whatever. And the, 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 the driver's just going, no, doesn't he understand there's debt? He had a, there's all these things he's got to pay back. He's got to, and I was like, I had this just like horrible thought. I'm pretty old now, right? I'm the last generation in Australia of people who got an undergraduate degree for free, right? Courtesy of Gough Whitlam in this country. And, you know, I can't tell you the difference that experience was. It's just, you know, People use the words like privilege or whatever now, and that's so true. But it doesn't actually, it actually gets everyone off the hook, that word in this case. it was You have no idea how different it was if you weren't in that situation where I could go into, say, the union building. They weren't selling, they weren't retail stores. There were just a whole lot of people. People were smoking dope. Some people were drinking. Some people were drinking tea. There's just a rowdy mass. And I'd get to meet people I would never, ever have met anywhere in my life before who have come from all over the place who are there for free who are studying the most amazing things and just being able to sort of talk to just it's just like just even in one tiny experience of it and then now what the debt the control the managerialism the shutting down of every real possibility for for i guess autonomy in the old sense right of both of education of being a student of being a teacher of what that means in terms of a kind of community and access and all those sorts of things that we think about but quite quite frankly I, I I feel like I was a I'm a I'm a little 
soft snail in a shell, which really was was really beautiful for me for about three years and then started to be corrosive itself. But I've got nowhere else to live. And so I'm being <laughs> corroded by my own, what was my own home or what I'd like. Does, it, does, does that make sense? It does. Yeah, mm. it does. Um, but in, in what ways is that um, from, from being on like both sides as a student and then as a teacher, how has that affected the way students are engaging with education, particularly in philosophy? Yeah, I, I mean the things the things that I think are that you know yeah it's a, look these are these are good these are good questions. I think that there is a desire, like a desire for philosophy. Uh, one of the, the great French philosophers at the moment, I guess he's the last one, he calls himself the last great philosopher anyway, uh, Alain Badiou, and he's, he is a great philosopher. But as he says, uh, you know, there is a desire for philosophy. And what's a desire for philosophy? It's, it's exactly a Socratic one. It can come from anywhere. It comes from the street, but it can come from above too. It can come from anywhere and nothing, nothing can give you what, the, what is the demand or the desire for philosophy, right? Now, the university or the institutions, not just the university, but all the institutions of modernity with which we're familiar are being like deliberately disrupted, hacked away, undermined, destroyed, and like individualizing people and dis distributing us, making us less and less able to meet together as, you know, in any kind of public space at all without being interfered with, right? Like now philosophy is that, you know, in from ancient, not just in ancient Greece, but all over the world where people gather and talk to each other in one one way or another in an open and free way, which doesn't mean say say anything you like necessarily. Freedom's not not just blurt your fucking head off, right? I mean, that's what they say today. Free speech, say anything you like. Piss off, there's nothing free about that. Say something free that requires explanation, concepts, discussions, arguments. So what I, I guess this is a long rambling sort of response to say there is a real desire for philosophy. And, you know, as a teacher, it's my, well, there's lots of people, even though the students are now, you know, going to be crippled with debt, they're still you know, they're still doing it. And like beyond the debt, beyond what you're paying, beyond the world you're in, you want to hear something, you want to think about something, you know, like you've never been able to think about before, make new connections, have new possibilities. So that desire for philosophy isn't going to go away, but I'm just not sure that the official institutions all having this legitimation crisis and undermining themselves in one way or another are going to be up to it. So it's kind of much more punk now in the sense that, well, the Melbourne School of Continental philosophy, which we we're talking about before, which is a one local version. But there's versions all over the world of these places where kind of just attempts to set up free associations of people to speak and give lectures or hear lectures, to participate if you want, to, yeah, to discuss, yeah, I guess ideas, but not just discuss them. They're, they're, they're ideas to be, you know, incarnated in your life, right? Like the... Does that, did that answer your question? It was too, yeah, rambly. I wonder if, um, you know, a lot of, when I think back on a lot of my favourite philosophers, they were all rebelling against the institution, although they were always 
yeah. the beginning immersed within them. How, yeah. Is it, do you th- do you think the institutions will always be necessary for that kind of thought? You know, it's it's a really good question. I I, I think I think I, I really and I like the way you put that too because I think it really is at the edge of institutions. Like you don't want to like you don't want to destroy everything because if you destroy everything, you're in what what are you? you you've got nothing to reform, and you know that's I, I feel that that's what late capitalism is doing. It's just destroying without without sustaining anything, right? So institutions are often corrupt as a, you know, in fact, it's kind of constitutional, but you need something of that poison to give sort of, to give you, this is what the state pharmacy looks like. But actually, if you just go down the road, you're going to find some, you know, you're going to find a, a you're going to find a yeah, street pharmacist who's going to offer you something you've never, yeah, you've never, never had before, right? To, yeah, to continue the analogy, the, the, there needs to be a sense of legitimacy to an argument and what yeah. brings it legitimacy is other people agreeing together like in some framework some institution needs to be around an argument to be like this is sound this makes sense this yeah. this this follows from this and and we, well, we, we, we felt this way we, as well we, we felt this way yeah. exactly and absolutely if we lose if we lose the tower in, entirely yeah. and the only like drugs we can u- use to, to um you know, to continue this analogy as far as we can put it, are from the street. Yeah. We don't know what we're putting in ourselves. We, there's no balance of, of what kind of concentration of dose or whatever. Like we, yeah. we depend on some people to make sure that there's a consistency between dosage, if that's the easiest yeah. way of kind of expressing what happens when we lose the tower. Yeah, well, well otherwise, because this is, a, this is a big problem in the history of, just even in the history of political philosophy, and a really like stupid, this is a kind of dumb thing to, of me to say, but in a stupid sense, it's like, you know, you know, say say Thomas Hobbes in the 17th century, you know, and Leviathan, one of the great books of, of, I guess, political philosophy, where he's just like, look, if that happens, if you have a disintegration of all institutions, what have we got is back to the war of all against all. It's a, the law of the strongest. There's no legitimacy or whatever legitimacy there is, is just seized for the moment by the guy who's the strongest. And tomorrow he's not going to be the strongest either because it's just going to be an endless chaos. Now that's fine. That's just worse. Now the other option is some institutions and those institutions can be pretty corrupt, right? Like Hobbes isn't, isn't praising them. He's just going, your choice bad or worse, right? So mm. his, his, that's his kind of really basic, I guess, aspect of political philosophy is that's why you can have to put up sometimes with sovereigns who are unbearable. Think of the Roman em- emperors, right? Unspeakable scum, basically. But in the end, everyone's just like, yeah, it's better this than just war of all against all. Or, yeah, yeah, life can always get shorter and life, more brutish. It, yes, it, yes, it can, exactly. And, yeah, I mean... Uh, Think about in the Middle East, you know, so many examples of that. Libya and uh, oh Iraq. My God. Oh, my God. Absolutely. And just the, and, you know, and that's one of the things about, you know, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. And just the, just the idea that you'd think that you can go in for, and totally destroy a society in order for your own, own ends. That's, I think that's part of a form of thinking today that even the kind of, you know, violent sort of reactionaries of the 17th century would never have gone that far. You never just go in, you know, commit massive war crime. You go in for a purpose and it's not that purpose is governance as much as it is, even if it's, a, a, you know, to your benefit rather than just simple distra- destruction or attempted at destruction and then 
you know, siphoning off the surplus for your for yourself, which which I see particularly in you know in in, in Iraq, as as mm. you mentioned that that it was it's it's not a war, it's a it's a it's a it's a to turn everything into absolute confusion and then just make sure you profit from the from the from from the oil, uh, I guess. Yeah. Just going back to the the academy academy as an institution. Yeah. Um, what, what do you make of uh, the way it's being used as a political football in all this identity politics and yeah. you know leftists are kind of cor- you know. Um, Corrupting our children yeah. in, in universities. Well, what do you make of that? Well, well, you know, I, I, I don't, look. There's so many things about it that I just get. I get. I just don't. It makes me so confused, and I feel so weird when I think about the public debate. So I, I can't turn on public TV anymore, like commercial TV, or read the. I just can't read the newspapers because I just think. Wow, this is why I'm a snail in a shell. Like I just never want to touch this the level of this debate. It's like, well, you know, Socrates was the the point about Plato sets up the first academy in a grove outside Athens, which is called the is sacred to a to a hero called Hecatemos, right? So that's where the name comes from. It's about it's about you know you killed you killed my teacher. The the state killed my teacher. So we're going to set up a, a, an institution of our own outside the walls, and like we're going to have some free you know, free philosophy uh, together. Now, the state today, like obviously the university is an integral part of the of the of the contemporary state, and so, you know, starting to worry about all the all the little all the little kids who are doing disgusting things and being perverted disturbingly by. Well, the first thing I'd say is like, even if that were true, why do you think that's a bad thing? Like. Honestly, like I, I think of this uh, Friedrich Nietzsche thing where he says, you know, people complaining about their parasites, oh, I've got so many, you know, like nits and lies. And he goes, but, you know, if you're if you're actually strong, you'd be boasting about it going, you've only got 100,000 lies. Me, sir, I have 10,000 billion lies, right? You should be proud of your parasites if you had any strength. One of the, so one of the indications I'd take from this debate, not only that it, it's, it's, it's stupidity, but the very weakness of the people who have got incredible power over us, they're, they're, they're telling us how weak they are as well. Like, and we just have to also hear, they're complaining about that? That's what, you're, that's what you complain about? Oh my God, you are, you're, in a, you're in a terrible position yourself, aren't you? Yeah. I think that's a very, uh, that's a very good way to understand so much of contemporary debate about coming from people with power and privilege who are losing that or they foresee that they're losing that and the way that they articulate that Mm. doesn't really follow that the white race is the strongest and most superior race but cannot survive immigration, for instance. Like those two things, they don't make sense next to each other but that's the argument that, 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 that... Australian racists are kind of like Absolutely. bringing people towards themselves with it's like they're this like this this incapacity to sustain more nits or more more parasites and then blaming yeah. someone else for, for, for that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, absolutely. I, I mean, even if you even thinking about things in, in, as parasites is already a decision, right? But, you know, you've already made your decision that these, you know, but, 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 you know, that's why I like the Nisha thing too. It's like, 
yeah, they're only parasites for you, on you, because because they need something from you. Are you strong enough to give it to them, or are you are you are you weak, right? And and the, but the other thing, I was talking to a friend about this the other day. Was was you know you pointed to something around say a, a white Australian racial discourse, which racist discourse, which is like just a flat out contradiction, right? Like just flat out. Uh, I, I was thinking about you know in 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 Sigmund Freud's, you know, the interpretation of dreams where he's just talking about people's dreams and desire and the unconscious, right? So, and that it's totally obscene. And his point is, is that, you know, he, he talks about something called Kessel logic, where he says there's this, this joke, you lend a Kessel to your neighbour and it's perfectly good when you lend it to them. They bring it back, it's completely fucked. It's got holes in, it's damaged. So you're like, look, you go back to the neighbour, you say, what have you done with my Kessel? And the neighbour goes oh, uh, I returned it undamaged. And then the neighbour goes also, oh, oh also uh, uh, it had those holes when you lent it to me. And then the neighbour also goes, oh, yeah, and you never lent me the kettle in the first place, right? And, and Freud says, look, all of these are false excuses. Every one of them is false, right? So they're not even true on their own. But you could be at least plausible if you just kept to your story. But the sign of desire, i.e. of a repressed truth that you can't bear, is the contradictions that emerge. So whenever you see contradictions, you know that desire is at work, right? Now, the problem is when he's, Freud's talking about dreams, that's about our dirty personal desires. But when you see it in a political sense, it sort of changes it is a contradiction and it is a, it is a horrible sign of weakness, but at the same time it's also in political, political stages also a sign sometimes like of I'm so, I'm so big, I'm just going to, I'm going to not only lie to you, I'm going to show you that I'm lying and I'm going to undermine my own lies and I'm going to show you that I don't even care about under, under, undermining my own lies. And then you think, right, then you could either be going down, like you say, or you're actually so confident you just don't even need to hide it. In fact, you're rubbing it in our faces. That's a very good point, yeah. Right. So I always feel that that double fear. Do you know what, I mean, there's a lot of terror around in the world, right? And, and you know. Yeah, you know, you know that the people ruling over us when they're, you know, I mean, this would obviously never happen in Australia, but perhaps someone in 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 power was accused of rape, right? Which no, it would never happen in this country, but obviously maybe another Pacific island somewhere close by, right? You 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 know, you'd never you'd never believe that they, you know, that that person would cry and present themselves as the victim or whatever. I mean, it just yeah yeah wouldn't uh, be done. That whole um, line that he pushed of. Um just imagine for a moment it was it wasn't true <laughs> not thinking the complete you know opposite oh my god well that's that right. he presents that's right it's like and that, that's why i think this kettle logic thing is actually quite a good way of thinking about things for freud it's always a sign of repression personally that's yeah you've got some desires you don't like but that's also you and they're going to come back but in a political frame they're a bit that 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 structure is it has different yeah, different implications, I think, like... Mm. Mm. Is that... Would that be a tautology? Ooh, I don't think so. Okay. I think it would be... I think it would be a scary thing. Maybe it should be a tautology, but no one, no, like, like I, I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, maybe politics is a place where this this happens a lot. Where I always feel that I've I've got everyone else is crazy, and I'm the only person who know who's, who knows anything at all. And I think, no, I'm clearly freaking crazy. I don't understand what any of them are saying. Why they're saying it? Why they're doing this? Is this? Are they? Are they? You know. 
like really the the contemporary political discourse could be just like people squealing in absolute agony or just like monster predatory monsters and i think a bit of both actually like but having no way of adjudicating that in a public sense is pretty to come back to the legitimacy of institutions yeah well i was just right. thinking this we, we we've this one of the themes of this podcast has been always been to kind of explore what 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 even the idea of counterculture could mean in a time like ours yeah. and we've we only recently put it to one of the people that we spoke to and and um brace belt in the last podcast yeah. was just like i just do not flat out just don't think it could exist right now yeah um and one reason that just occurred to me as we were talking as i'm finding myself somehow like trying to defend the legitimacy of institutions is that unless there is a legitimate institution, there can't be a counterculture. Like does does that follow yeah. to you? Uh, does, yeah, does that make it sense? Does. Like, it does. Yeah. What, what does it counter to? Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. That, that, I mean, that is that is a tautology in a way, right? That, and I think that's absolutely right. But just there has to be a difference, right? But we're not in a time that likes difference, in, in my opinion, at all. In fact, we're trying to, to obliterate – the attempt to obliterate difference is a real – it seems to me a real program, whether or not it's conscious or not. And one of the things that, that is to, to do that, like – you know, you're actually obliterating the differences that institutions made and also even obliterating the desire or the recognition to come back to exactly what you said, that these institutions are not always there to normalise. They are, but no one had to take them seriously, right? Like you could also say, yeah, I know this is an institution, we've got to do this, but actually it's not total, it's not totalitarian. We're going to have our street and counterculture as well. But if you get rid of one, you do get rid of the other. As, uh, so what's, what's, what's to come? Like how do, we, um, how do we look at the future of like an institution being legitimised? Yeah. Or if, 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 if we are looking at this situation, you've, you've, you've thought a lot about nihilism. Yeah, and 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 you're familiar enough with Nietzsche to to kind of be able to speak about the time of like the you know the last yeah. people people. Yeah, I guess, that's yeah. right. That's right. So, the time of the last people. Yeah, like. can you can you kind of just um, explain that concept because I I, th I think it's something that would be quite rewarding to hear your perspective. Yeah, I guess this, this goes back to some of the post truth things. I guess we're, we're talking about and uh, in in one way or another, legitimacy crisis, legitimation crises, and so on. But the thing that uh, that Nietzsche says uh, this is one of the things that he says about nihilism and it's really important in a kind of post-truth any post-truth analysis where everyone goes we've lost the truth we need the truth back we just need to establish another institution we need some ways of you know getting trump to tell the truth it was like ah oh, you poor bastards like the niche of niche's point is is a much more a weirder historical point which is it goes back to to i guess plato in a way he goes you know what did plato do he said plato said here we are in the in the material world, but actually it's not the real world. The real world is somewhere else. It's a higher world. It's an idealized world. And, you know, there's, you know, that difference is what we have to think as philosophers in the material world, which is one of flux and mutability. But we want to get back up to the immutable, you know, realm of the ideas, or at least this is a, a standard way of thinking of Plato. And, he, and for Nietzsche, Plato thereby does a couple of things. He establishes truth as the criterion in the mutable world of what speaks to the ideas and 
what's false as well. But then Nisha says, the problem with establishing truth on these two worlds, and you know, you can see it in all sorts of uh, religions, right? Most monotheisms have a, have a comparable dis distinction. Many other religions and practices do too. But Nisha's point is that the very installation of truth at the center of this machine, truth undermines itself because it keeps questioning itself so thoroughly, it actually in the end ends by breaking down. And so the nihilism that, that Nietzsche saw in the 19th century imperial colonial Europe, which he actually despised and condemned as a, as a kind of sign of nihilism, his point was that you can't just say we want the truth, this is true and this is false. He goes, that's, a, that's the problem itself, was thinking that there was a false world and a true world in the first place. And so whenever you want to say, oh, we just need to get truth back, it's like, no, that was the poison, not the cure. You're asking for more poison? Now, that works homeopathically, but only to a point, right? Like, And so that's part of the, the problem problem for Nisha of the nihilism of the world we're in, you can't just fix it by saying we need truth again. Who's going to, who's going to impose that? And, and, you know, part of the problem for Nisha then, and you can see it in the Nazi interpretations of his work of, as will to power, it just takes that Fuhrer or that strong man to be the, ne the, the, the next person to implement what is going to be the new regime of truth for everyone, right? But for Nisha... That's also nihilism again. It's just repeating the same phenomenon. So his question, which is an open question, I reckon, is out of this chaos: Is it possible to form new ways of new ways of thinking that don't don't end up repeating the nihilist drama? And the nihilist drama is literally around around the, the primacy of truth itself. So you can't just separate them and go, "It's truth against nihilism." It's for, for Nietzsche, truth. You know, putting truth at the centre like ends up necessarily as a, at, a, at a nihilist nihilist end. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. and I'm curious as because this is a process that um, can be quite traumatic to think through. Yeah. It definitely was for me and I know a lot of yeah. people that um, are caught at various stages of it and you can yeah. really see just how far advanced someone is through that process of thinking in terms of um, how traumatized they are by it because yeah. it, 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 can, it can lead you in a, in a in a real um, dark spiral. Yeah. So, so how how did you process this? That's Nisha's point. Is he, he says I'm the first accomplished nihilist in all of Europe. I went 200 years into the future and came back, and I'm telling you, God is dead. Like there's no in institution that's going to stabilize this like this this reign, right? And his point is exactly what you said: is once you start, it's like a Pringles ad, right? You can't <laughs> stay, once you pop, you can't stop, right? Like because you can't stop. So at some point, like Nisha's thing is, well, you have to. If you're talking about this in a therapeutic sense, which I think is one of the things that's great about you know proper philosophy to come back to how we sort of started, it's got to speak to you and your personal body, right? Like to your not personal body, what a stupid. Sorry, I'm going to say say even more stupid things. <laughs> Like, but it's got to speak to you directly and not everything does, right? But at some point, it's also got to tell you about things that have got nothing to do with your body at all and to which your body is irrelevant, but where some connection, I think, can be made, right? But sometimes nothing stops that fall, right? But in all of us, in a kind of individual therapeutic sense, I guess in a Nietzschean therapy, which is you get to a point, I think he's got this in Zarathustra, this, uh, you know, 
You have to be a lion and roar at the world like, <laughs> but then you open up a desert because if you've destroyed, if you've roared at the world, what's left in the world that's going to support you? Well, nothing. You, you quite rightly destroyed that. So then he says, you've got to become a camel, like he's got this metamorphosis of the soul and you've got to go across that desert, right? Who knows how long that desert is? Who knows if you're going to get to an oasis? Who knows if you're going to get to the end, right? But at the end, then you can have a rebirth and you'll become a child, which is obviously a new beginning on earth and we don't know what they're capable of, right? So, you know, I think that's the the, 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 the kind of nation thing mm. is maybe nothing will stop it, right? But maybe something will, but we're in the, de we're in the desert of the real, as, uh, as uh, Jean Baudrillard put it. But in the desert of the real, let's take that seriously and all its topological and its, and its geographical and its, its kind of you know, symbolic significance. And I think that's what Nisha does. I mean, you've got to be a camel at that point. Nothing sustains you. You're just a, you're one of the ugliest animals on the, you know, on the planet. But, yeah. I think that's, yeah, that's, uh, that's really well put. You got, you have to bear the weight. You got to, yeah, absolutely. Yep. But also in Nisha, sorry, sorry to keep crapping on, but he also has this thing about, yeah, you've got to say yes to that destiny too. That's why he says that's the... Affirmation. The yeah. affirmation. But the affirmation is really hard. And he also says, and this is to come back to what I said about sometimes you can't tell whether these people are squealing in pain or laughing at you from power. He goes, you know, sometimes you hear the... Yeah, yeah. It's basically a donkey just being loaded down, going yeah, 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 and thinking it's being affirmative. But yeah, yeah, in that case, you're just a donkey too. So when you're even, even in the midst of affirmation, something, something, you know, you're never in a, you're never in a, you're never in a, you're never in a safe place. Basically, under the, those, like everything you're doing is on the edge of something, right? And if you think you, you think you've got it made, then well, Phoenicia, well, you haven't roared, you haven't been in the desert, you're not a child because you haven't, if you're a child, you haven't got anything made, and you, 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 or you're in the, in the, yeah. So, at what point for you after um, reading that hmm. Derrida book did you decide to roar? And become a become a oh teacher and pursue, pursue it. And well, that's one of the things. Like universities have always been like since the Middle Ages, been considered terrible places that you've got to get out of. And there's always been student riots, and they've always been full of corrupt, corrupt church church going preachers and stuff. Right. So you know, um, the problem is, is that like sometimes they're apparatuses of capture. Right. And I just like never wanted to stop. Like after, you know, and the problem is, 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 uh, yeah, as one of my friends says, you don't want to just keep chasing that feeling either, right? But I guess I was chasing the feeling of being, <coughs> being high on, on, on Derrida and then just, but just kept going and then, yeah, basically never left, like, like I say, like a snail. And, so, but, but, you know, you know, got, got, got a job in, in 2000 uh, at, a, at a university in, in, in Australia and it was, you know, just to, which was fantastic to have the money and have some, yeah, as you know, you need, you need money and stability for that sort of thing. And, um, but just to, to meet students too, when I was teaching at a regional university and just to meet also students who'd, um, you know, who were there first generation of their families ever to be at university, like many of them, and just to, you know, just go, actually, this isn't just bullshit. Everything in the world says this is just blah, blah, blah. And for the most part, that's that's kind of true. But to come back 
to what we were talking about before, there is a desire for there is a desire for something, right? Like, and that desire doesn't ha- always have a name. And so, to talk to students and have you know arguments with students or ex- read books and and discuss you know these arguments, good or whatever. Like, is this good? Why is this not good? What is this? I just really, it's yeah. I think it's yeah. There's nothing like it, right? Like, and you can do it anywhere. You can do it. You know, it's like having a VP or whatever. Yeah, yeah but it's it is it is. <laughs> Even with the rise of the internet, I find that those conversations are happening far less and less, maybe on obscure Reddit threads or something where yeah. people are really getting together and saying, yeah. what the fuck are we doing here? Yeah. Like, I, why are we here? What, what, how, how do I know what I'm doing yeah. is good or I think you, I think you need to break the frame. That's why institutions are also important and the worst institution of the world we're in is now is the, is, uh, is the internet because exactly even on obscure Reddit things, you're not just... You know, you're connected to the to the to techno capitalism by these devices, which are recording you the whole time, are surveilling you, monitoring you. You know, the Australia's monitoring you, the US, prior Israel, China. Who isn't? You know, I think I think this is a well known. And so everything. And you didn't make that equipment. You don't know anything about how it works. Basically, you know, like no one does. I mean, it's so complex now that noticing. You know. Uh, as, as, as you said, you don't know very much. You don't know very much. So you have to be lucky. This is also one of the stories of, of philosophy is you have to accident, you know, okay, you've been, you've, been, you've been prosecuted for like counterfeiting the currency. What the fuck am I going to do now? I'm, fu- I'm going to Athens maybe. I'll, and then you meet the absolutely by chance an absolutely demented person called Socrates and you're like, yeah, this is it, right? But it's by chance. Or um, another thing, because I was one of the guys. I was uh, uh, one of the things I liked about the university. Uh, I was at they had a psychoanalytic studies program, which was really fantastic, and um, uh, uh, teaching Lacan. Like uh, this was a, a deacon and uh, Russell Gregg, who's a, a big local Lacanian, was um, a translator of Lacan. Uh, was there. So re- reading a lot of uh, Jacques Lacan, French psychoanalyst, mid 20th, mid late 20th century, whatever. But uh, uh, there's stories about him. Uh, there's this, uh, one of his students, this guy called Mustafa Safwan, who's a uh, um, uh, who's an Egyptian Egyptian guy uh, who ended up becoming a Lacanian, big Lacanian psychoanalyst in France. And he basically just is trying to get to it's after the Second World War. He's trying to get to, to Oxbridge so he can study logic and proper analytic philosophy. He's basically run out of money. He's on the streets of Paris. Meets this like bizarre buffoon guy who says, how about coming back to my apartment and having some tea? He's like, and it turns out like Lacan's running a seminar or whatever and just wants to talk about psychoanalysis. And, and Safwan himself says, I mean, that was the feeling you must have had when you met Socrates. You're alone, you're lost, you don't know anyone, you're not quite, you don't have the money, you're not quite where you wanted to be. And all of a sudden you have this chance encounter. But that's, it's not very, it's not very much, but that's what you got, which, which then changes your life. Uh, I think that there is something in that. You just have to be, you have to be lucky as well, right? Like to, yeah. And open. Lucky and like, open. And sometimes desperate, you know? <laughs> yeah. And uh, was, was there something particular about continental philosophy that drew you and like psychoanalysis and the work of Alain Badiou that... Yeah. To, that made you want to teach it or was that just was that why was that always the pathway for you well that's right well i don't think it was always but but you know uh you know i, I like that but himself has these descriptions or well, psychoanalysis you know 
like Connor's this great thing about what's ethics. Well, you know, in the ethic, uh, in the end, ethics is just following your desire, right? Will it be good for you? No, it won't be. Desire isn't good for you, right? And it'll take you to places that you didn't expect and you didn't want to go. And it'll also, in that process of desire, it turns out as you continue, you'll find a whole load of, I guess, is a redescription of the sort of things we were saying before about Nisha too. Something's going to emerge that you didn't expect that turns out to be non-negotiable, even though it doesn't bear any resemblance to your earlier life nor to your projections nor really what you're you're, you're doing now. And and the, the problem was, I think is just, you know, as I said, I think that's the thing that above all uh, captivated me is that relationship between a strange encounter which in which overwhelms me like and I don't know what's happening or why it's happening and then starting to read and do things in a way that or, or, or be really and then start to meet all these other people who are into them who are all quite you know some of them are quite weird people as I, I think you know we can all testify and then actually all of you being there united and divided just trying to go what's going on how do we know more is knowing more good you know, by that stage, and then what you're reading is actually reflecting upon all those questions too. And by that stage, I'm just sort of lost, maybe lost in bullshit, but like, you know, I'm still going to keep bullshitting if that's the... What's the most recent experience like this for you, like uh, in terms of maybe a more um, contemporary thinker or an engagement yeah. with a contemporary thinker, just just some something that has happened recently? Or that... an engagement with a student. Yeah, yeah. These are these are good questions. I, I, I mean, I think I think I'm probably you know Nisha also has this line about you know uh, a person who's a teacher only takes things ever ever takes things seriously with respect to his students, even himself. And I found you know I don't I don't think I've, I've got any real details, but you know I just really you know student just particularly sort of guys who are doing PhDs, you know, who or, or whatever you know. Who, and whatever the PhD is on, these these people are, are making a, a claim, and I'm become interested and excited by what it is that they're doing, even if I'm not originally very interested. Or sometimes I shouldn't be doing. You know, it's not. You know, it's not the best thing for me to be doing. Or maybe I'm not the best person for the job, or whatever. But due to one accident or another, just to be captivated by students, students' own desires, and and you know, that's not that's not always. I can't, Sorry to be all, but but I don't think I can give details around that of for course. all sorts of, of reasons. Course, but yeah. just to just to sort of I guess testify to the feeling once again that there is a desire for philosophy. It really is out there. It comes from all over the place. It doesn't have any particular. It doesn't have any particular. It doesn't look like anything at all, right? Like, but every now and again, someone turns up and goes, "I need to do this more," and that itself is a kind of absolute. And it has, you know. It, it looks pretty weird in the in the eyes of the world or whatever the world world is or what you imagine you know the yeah the yeah people generally whoever whatever that means to think um, that that I, I find that un, un, unbelievably great like I just can't I can't tell you yeah, yeah. I think that that would obviously um, go a long way towards explaining why we're doing this yeah like to, not just to well, sit down with you but to sit down with anyone have these discussions is because 
where these experiences are so valuable for both of us. Well, you know, I, I mean, if you want to, if you want to name of someone I've been reading recently who I think is really amazing, and I can tell you, I can tell you, I can give you sort of propositional reasons why in this case, which is this uh, guy who teaches in South Africa called Akil Mabembe, and he's written like a lot of books. One's just one's called Brutalism, one's called Necropolitics, one's called Critique of Black Reason, and so on. And he just has this incredible incredible vision, which is that, you know, for 500 years, capitalism and slavery, blackness has been, has been, you know, has been enforced by, by the most extreme iniquities of, a, of, a, of, of colonial organisation, right? Now we're at the end of that. It's decaying and it's collapsing and people are desperate and obviously hanging on to power, acting wildly. He goes, well, now it's time to think through what those 500 years meant how it happened, what the, what the, what the consequences are, what, how we're going to think of a future, which is often in a global frame, but he's thinking it from a particular point and from a particular, you know, like uh, uh, attitude, which implicates us all. And of course, his thing is, I mean, he, you know, he, he even talks about things like, uh, you know, what we need to set up as zones of conviviality, right? What does that mean? It just means a place where everyone can meet, right? Like in this, you know, let's not, let's not, Let's not seek revenge necessarily. Let's definitely, you know, name names and let's definitely, you know, bring down those statues of Rhodes, right? But also let's try and go forward by creating new zones of, you know, his phrase is zones of conviviality where 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 people can meet, where, you know, yeah. What well, what is it where Yeah. You have to be you have to be you have to be able to speak and you have to be able to be listened to. And you also have to be able to to hear hear the hear hear others as well. It's a very minimal sort of um, dream, and he puts it much better. But just, uh, I, I want to say it's not the most radical thought I'm uh, I've ever read, but it's a really strong one at this time, and particularly in this moment. And it's a particularly his analyses are, are pretty 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 amazing, basically of the the, the history of slavery, of negritude, and and, and, mm. and so forth. And you know what, what what's more. What's more, yeah, what's more pressing, like the... Um, I'm, I'm just going to go back to what we were talking about earlier about, you know, what, what's happening in politics. You, you're kind of trying to block it out, but it, it, it seems kind of always present when you're t talking about philosophy and literature, which is something yeah. you write about a lot. How, yeah. how do you negotiate those two things when you're teaching or when you're writing up a course and deciding what to teach people and and, yeah. and how do you negotiate that balance of the world around you and the ideas that you want to present yeah are they always in, interconnected they, I, I, look they really are and uh, sorry I, you know I, i'm just going to say something you know i guess i guess it was in, in a way it's been good to uh, it's been it's it's been good to talk to you because um uh, I, I realize i like zones of conviviality right let's let me say that i definitely i definitely like uh, uh limit conditions as well like you have to be prepared to talk about things that are, that are difficult like whether that whether they're personal desires or political uh political um terrorism or something also you need to be prepared to continue with it like right right to keep going like not just dip in and 
and and and dip out. And at the same time, to come back to the thing I was saying about, you know, I guess the Derrida thing is like, yeah, your body has to be connected to the to something like a universal or something that's not you that has nothing to do with you and whether that connect. So yes, it, it turns out there's always a connection. So like to give you an example of a just one subject I taught uh, last year, it's about poetry. It's basically English poetry, so it's all in English or whatever. But we go from it went from a kind of 16th century poem by a guy called John Skelton, who was uh, Henry VIII's tutor, by the way, as a um, He's a pretty weird guy and he's really, this poem's called Speak Parrot, which is basically a parrot quacking in eight, squawking in eight or so languages how much it hates a, a, a Cardinal Wolsey. So, I mean, it's a pretty weird poem. No one really understood it at the time. If they properly understood it, probably, you know... Um, and we, were, we went from there through a whole series of, you know, both classic English, uh, both classic po uh, uh, poems, you'd know, uh, poets you'd know, but we finished with them, Nabozi Philip, who's a Canadian Tobago woman, uh, her Zong, which is the, the, the most recent book. And that, that's about this appalling event in which a British slave ship threw overboard 108 of the slaves and then claimed it on insurance basically it's a it's a huge event in in the history of of of, of colonial slavery from the 18th century the ship's called zong which means it means song right so Bozzy philip has got this incredible poem i can't recommend it to you highly enough zong exclamation mark which does all of the most extreme sort of malarme and formal experimentation but it's about this you know, you can get a more political, political, politicised event as well. So I guess what I would say is, it would. It, I need to, to when I set if I'm thinking about setting something up. Yeah, I, I always think. Well, we have to have English poetry from here to here, and we'll give the students a range of genres and blah blah blah. But in the end, it's got to be both absolutely personal and absolutely and political. And that's not me putting that in there. That's the that's the. That's the that's the objective state of this of, of this literature, for instance, and like it's our job to you know show people that it's there, or just go look look at this, it's fantastic. Then talk about it, then say here's some things you can look at this, take this, have a look at this, look at what are you going to assemble uh, uh, assemble from that. So I, I, I see that's a kind of pedagogical mode, but to answer your question directly, no, never there. You know, no matter how much you try and force it out or get it away from you. You, you know, we're all politicised. We can't can't avoid that, but not always in as direct a way as people think. And we're all we've got our own absolutely personal, uh, disgusting desires, but also not quite as we think either, right? So yeah, uh, that leads us to we we want to talk about your poetry. When did that start for you? When did you decide to start writing? And Look, I always wanted to be a poet. When I was little, I thought I you know I read. I remember reading like uh, you know. Uh, uh, the the Alice in Wonderland books and Jabberwocky, you know, the Jabberwocky poem, which is just such a great poem. Like, I, you know, I can bore you. I could, yeah, I could bore the, bore the shit out of you literally going, and twas brillig and the slithy toves. I was just, this is, I was like eight or something. It's like, this is the best thing I've ever, ever read. And 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 one of the things that then obviously I just, I've just sort of kept reading poetry, but, but and I've always wanted to write poetry and I'd like people to go, oh, yeah, he's a good poet or I've always wanted that. Um, but 
Now I also just think actually poetry is something that's radical as well. People have a desire for poetry in this world, like they have a desire for, for, for philosophy. And poetry and philosophy, they're obviously very old enemies, at least according to, to, yeah, to, to that's, Plato. That's what I wanted to say. Yeah. What was poetry doing for you that philosophy wasn't? Yeah. Well, it's funny because like in the end, I, 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 I think I, I, I've, I, I'm not good enough, like I'm quite serious about this, is that if you, you know, you know, the cap, just the captivation, there's a, look, you know, the, the captivation that, that a poem gives is very different from a captivation that philosophy gives, I think. I, I mean, just at least personally, it's ha have very different forms of attention and different forms of thought. Different parts of my brain do feel different when I read different, I've got different practices. But, you know, I, I, one of the things about starting to write poetry and like, you know, and like giving readings and then reading other uh, Australian poet, local poets and whatever, and just meeting people who are really, really serious just about poetry. Like some people are really, really super serious just about philosophy or whatever. And just realising like the incredible, yeah, just the incredible work and vision they have and then it's like nothing else on earth. And so like some of these people, like Australia's, you know, it's not a very big place, not a very important place. It's not, it's like, but I think some there's some, absolutely amazing things happening here and voices that are just, they're quiet, they're almost unhearable. You might, mightn't recognise them, but that's what I, you know, that's what I'd want for myself. But I can also recognise that these, some of these poets are just, no, it's of another order and there's no way, there's no way I'll ever be like that. And um, I don't want to embarrass myself, but I'm not going to stop trying, like, if that's, yeah. But I will embarrass myself too. <laughs> yeah. It was a... Oh, how how difficult is poetry writing to you in comparison to philosophy? Writing philosophy. Mm, I've, uh, look, I feel that I feel that uh, I, I'm. You know, this is this is this is a kind of failure thing, which is I do feel that most of my work is as a teacher rather than either as a philosopher or a poet, and that's a, that is a kind of admission of, of a kind of failure. But what, what, why I say that is that I can I can now pump out like academic articles like there's no tomorrow, like you go boop, 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 right, and it's like all right, like absolutely unreadable, can't you know almost die reading it, rereading it myself, just like fall asleep, whatever. So that's not quite right. Every now and again, you know, philosophy, writing philosophy is I really am at the edge of what I know and I really don't know how to proceed, but I know there's something there because I can't find anything else that will quite sort of like cover over that gap that's opened up and that gap is actually saying, can you think about me in a, in a way that you can explain that to other people that doesn't go through all these, you know, reservation, not, not, not reservations, but, 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 but thickets and, and complexities and, and hiding. Can you, can it, can you just say that, right? Like, whereas the, the, the poetry seems to me is like, I don't care. This just has to be said absolutely right. And I, you know, I don't even know it's a different kind of two forms of not knowing, I would say, like, or two forms of limit knowing. If yeah. I could bring something else to that, um, you're you're very familiar with with Lacan and and obviously psychoanalysis, um, which is like a, a, a form of therapy. It is. Which mm. which do you lean on in a therapeutic sense? Mm. I mean, actually, yeah. I, look, 
I don't know because I, I think that's one of the reasons why I guess the three things that I've been talking about, uh, you know, philosophy, poetry and psychoanalysis. The thing that I like about psychoanalysis is it tries to join the two in a therapeutic way, right? And in a way I can see the praxis of it and the praxis of it, which is the best, one of the best things about it is that, is that, you know, it's the principle for Freud of free association where the patient just lies there and you just say anything that comes into your head, no matter how obscene, stupid, unmissile. Un and as you keep talking, first of all, that's impossible because you're always censoring yourself and then you catch yourself censoring yourself and then you have to start thinking about why you're censoring yourself and then you try and uncensor yourself, but that's another form of censoring. And then you can see the, the abyss there. But that form of speech with no end in sight, right? And no aim, no goal. You don't want to convince people. You don't want to show them the truth. You don't want to, it's just for you, just like, whoa, 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 whoa. What's going to come up? But you need someone else there as a kind of witness and, a, and maybe an editor or an interrupter to go, hang on, what, what, about, what about that contradiction? You, you know, what, what does that mean? Whereas with, with poetry, it's, with philosophy, there is still a, a, a drive to explain necessarily. Like, I mean, you can see it in, you know, someone like Reza Negrostana, like who, you know, who, who's incredibly complex, massive, now, like ratiocinations, explaining every moment and every change that, you know, every, you know, whether or not it succeeds is nothing. But that's a kind of epitome of that drive. In poetry, it's, it's, a, it's a different sort of different sort of thing, right? But I'm not sure that uh, thera therapeutically, I'm not sure what they would do therapeutically. But the thing about poetry is I think it harbors, it definitely harbors, I mean, all of these things, they harbor all affects and they're open, they're open to everyone. That's, but not in the same way and not with the same, you know, same outcomes. Yeah, I don't know if that answers your question. It does, it does, it does in the sense that um, I was really trying to get you to talk about how they relate to each other. Yeah, uh, let, let me add, like, like, are these connected or these things disconnected? I'm really interested in, in you know, uh, Badu has this great phrase for it, you know, you have to uh, construct a space of compossibility for, for, for the disparate, right? Things that have nothing to do with each other. A philo you know, a philosophy can say, no, they might seem utterly different, poetry, mathematics, politics, love, for instance, but actually... There must be a way to think these incredibly disparate processes in their, not their unity, but the fact that they, they, there must be a place where some truth com is communicated between all of them, but without reducing them, right? And I, I think that, you know, whether it's in poetry or philosophy or psychoanalysis, I think that's that's a, a really uh, uh, bad use sense. We, we need a piece of the discontinuous, which is another way talks about that same same thing that's what i think i'm interested in in in, in principle and in my life it's mm -hmm. like you know you can't you know yeah you don't want you don't want to unleash this into a war of all against all you don't want to reduce this into just a one how can you be between you know the uh, allowing allowing heterogeneity you know, the different to be different and at the same time find a place to use you now this time Mbembe's phrase again a zone of conviviality for for heterogeneous like not just people but but ideas and and things is there a place where that that's it's our job to construct that place like i think like yeah have you tried to exploit some of that automatic kind of stream of consciousness writing uh, in your poetry i mean I, it's always uh, something i'm wanting to do but it, it's uh, it's nerve-wracking because you reveal a side of yourself that you're kind of trying to hide but then the way you were describing yeah. 
writing philosophy and poetry was as though you were revealing constantly mm. something to yourself almost. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you know what you say is exactly right, and and but but also I have I have a lot of fear, right? And and I can see my friends because I have some friends who I know they are real artists, whether they're good artists or bad artists, different. But their life is a kind of, and they're always, you know, they're they're both they're, they're, some of the people I'm thinking of. Some of them are just exactly stream of consciousness, and they're happy to go with some shameful things that are shameful for them, not just objectively, that have come out. And I'm like, <laughs> that's part of your courage and that's part of your courage in being an artist, right? Like, uh, and, you know, sometimes it looks like flagrant self, uh, you know, narcissism or, you know, exhibitionism or something. But the thing about the art bit of it is that, no, it needs something more than just being a, a like a like a social social media narcissist or whatever. And they, they, they're prepared to, 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 to go with that and... And, and actually expose themselves. And I find that, you know, even though I find it anxiety-inducing, like I can, which is maybe part of the point actually, uh, I, I can admire their courage in doing that. Whereas other people are incredibly controlled artists like who think through everything and but also are quite, you know, quite flat and definite about, no, that's it. There's no other way that's going to be done. That's going to be, it's like, well, that's, they're both kinds of art that I kind of admire, which I can't quite get my, you know, because I keep, I keep talking about this, you know, sorry, I'm a bit Pollyanna-ish, right? Oh, a bit of a balance between me. So, uh, you know, maybe that's unfortunate, but I can see, you know, like, like, like if you, if you don't get your, your art right, you can just like vitiate it, but you, you have to be on the edge of something, right? These people are hyper cerebral and they do this incredible stuff and other people who are like prepared to, you know, yeah, just, just be ashamed of themselves, but you know, yeah. So do you have do you have any a, a particular process that you go through when you're writing your poetry? Yeah, no, I I, I don't, and and you know uh, it's it's become less and less. You know, uh, you know, I used to I used to think inspiration like in a very stupid romantic way. You'd wait, you'd get drunk and wait for inspiration or something, and then you'd like <laughs> like write it down, like. Um, but. You know, I don't do, I, I can't do that for all sorts of reasons. And now I write poetry more and more rarely. But the things that I have to say, which is a, is, is contemporary in one way and ancient in another way, that people find different ways of, uh, of you know, writing, you know, stream of consciousness, cut up works or excision works. You know, you're working with things that are already there. They're collage works. They're like, and I, I found for me, like the, the, the most, the things I like uh, are really good is like reading, trying to translate works from say say French or whatever, which I may not be very good at, but it forces a whole load of uh, you know exigencies and controls upon me. It forces me to a point both of knowledge and non-knowledge at the same time. It forces me to work to read really really intensely this other thing, then read around that thing to think about what they might have been doing, and then to sort of produce something in English and uh, that maybe a direct translation or maybe bears no resemblance to it but gets something of that that poem so using a con, that's that that's part of my I, I guess one of the things i'm doing at the moment that i'm i'm quite i'm quite it's it's been good for me because it gives me it gives me it gives me a control you know it's an institutional thing it gives me the institution of a poem to control my my response but also my response doesn't have to be completely dictated by one to one correspondence but by in any in a, in a necessarily in a straightforward way yeah are there any translators that you look at 
um, in, with, with, with the same kind of awe that you look at a poet? Mm. Like are there, is there anyone that because you'd be familiar with mm. the strength of their translation, mm. can, can, you, can you speak of anyone um, or are you just... <laughs> I think Lydia Davis who did the first volume of Proust's uh, A la Recherche de Tom Perdue uh, about a few years ago and then she wasn't involved in the rest of the translations and they were, but she just did the first uh, the, uh, first volume of that and that I thought that was an amazing translation. It was better than the, it was one of the few things better than the earlier translations. Of, did of Lydia Davis do um, Madame Bovary as well? Oh, she might have done. I haven't read okay. it but that's exactly, yeah, she might have done and she's a writer as well so, yeah. Excellent, uh, excellent. Yeah. But, but I, I remember, I, yeah, I think that's, she does the first one. I remember being that you were amazing. Like, yeah, I was super impressed. Can you just draw that out a little bit as a translator? Like what is the skill set that, mm. that, that you make to you say that someone's that, that good? Well, I, uh, all right, I'm reading uh, to my older daughter at the moment. Like so before she goes to bed, like read a book and I'm reading this book which was a big hit in um, – uh, I can't even remember the title now, big hit in France, but it's a young adult sort of sci-fi, science fantasy adventure, really, really massive hit in, in France, been translated into English. But as I read the English of it, like I can tell the bad decisions about the French words that were behind it, certain phrases that are quite formal in French, that sound formal in English but aren't so formal in French, for instance, have been translated in a kind of clunky way, a whole series of just things around bodily, around the you know, body movements and so on, still sounds like they've they've not been fully integrated into English. It's not quite clear what idea the, the translator had of, of, well, why would you translate that like that? I can see, yes, it's a verbatim, you know, it's a, it's a perfectly standard translation, but it doesn't fit with the, that phrase doesn't fit with the sense of the rest of that paragraph. The rest of the paragraph is very lyrical and you've just plopped that in and it's not meant to be a disjunctive sort of, you know, interruption of the of the lyricism by a really you know i guess i'm just saying like tin-eared mm -hmm. like whereas uh, that 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 yeah that that first volume of uh, i think swan in love is is uh yeah you just like totally captivating and it's like oh shit i'm reading a tra i'm reading a translation right i think this is the third version third translated version of this book i mean madame bovary is another good one for where you can see translators going you know yeah, you know, trying their hardest to, mm. to deal with someone who's, yeah. But but I guess that's what I, what I would say is like you could get a sense that the you, you, you're actually, well, the immersive sense, at least in, in this case, like completely immersed in it and also no, no sense of any clangers or anything's gone wrong. I'm, I'm in that text as if it were an English text and yet it, it isn't like, I mean, yeah. Mm, it's like you almost need that kind of be attuned to that poetic, sentiment a bit to really read what these words mean and then yeah you know, what they evoke in, uh, ex yeah, exactly 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 because it's not a there's no one-to-one -one translation between languages right mm. like we're all you know we can all pretty much say the same things like beer or slab or whatever 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 word we're, we're, we're pointing to but when you get into something like poetry i mean it's just like yeah you you, you know you're in a particularly unbelievably volatile zone so you know one of the one of the poem, poets i really like 
I think I talk about this all the time as a mid 15th century uh, French uh, criminal called Francois Villon. Like every chance I get to talk about him, I talk about him, right? Yeah, the murderer. The, the murderer. He's uh, the poor bastard. He only stabbed the guy in the groin with a rusty pen knife. Yeah. Was it? Yeah, so did Caravaggio. Exactly. He doesn't you know? get as bad a rap. No, I think uh, Villon was not a. I mean, Caravaggio, you know, he was connected with money, right? So, I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I like Villon's like. Uh, a different thing, but one of his poems, you know, it's, uh, you know, Ballad of Old Time Ladies or however you want to think about it. It's a beautiful little poem which is embedded in his uh, his, his big work, uh, the big, uh, Le Grand Testament or the Big Testament. And, um, you know, everyone in English has had a go at that, like all sorts, like hundreds of people. So at one stage I was just collecting all the different translations of of that one uh, poem from, and they're like, they're mental, right? From the mid 19th century, uh, the most famous translations are, are, are Rossetti's, but all sorts of people do, do uh, um, even, um, you know, Robert Lowell, just all sorts of poets, like some famous, some not famous, some scholars, some not scholars. They all have a go at translating it. Uh, Ezra Pound does his own kind of villain, villainos rather than a... And it's like, wow, out of this one, like, poem, this one dead criminal, one dead murderer's poem, like... Um, like, 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 I think I found like 250 or something different versions of it. I was just really obsessed with all the different decisions they'd made and the, yeah. That's fantastic. It's an amazing thing. Like, I had yeah. a thing where I would, there was a particular paragraph in Brothers Karamazov that which would electrify me and I'd just be in tears laughing at it. So I'd always yeah. look in each translation to see how it's translated. It's the yeah. first time you meet, meet Karamazov and it's talking about, I'm sorry, you know, the, 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 elder patriarch and he's talking about the shape of his um his huge ears his, his big nose which he describes as like a roman nose he boasts about it kind of thing and then they always focus on this flabby um piece of flesh on his throat that one um one translator called a, me- a meaty purse Ooh, and then good. there was a, a, like a, a someone else with something like a ham wallet or something like that that's good so, too so as you go through um I use yeah. that as a kind of a measure for a trend. That's brilliant. What makes a translation work is yeah. almost like you find a passage yeah. that you know you love and if you want to see if the next translation is good, just go to that uh, passage and see if it works. That's a really great, that is a really great principle. I would l- really like to know, I would l- really like to know the best translation you can come up with now after the meaty, <laughs> meaty purse. The meaty purse just killed me. Right. As a word for the jowls that hang yeah. from, a, from a bloated it's, alcoholic's throat, the meaty purse. It's also a great band name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the meaty purse, the, the meaty purse. Just one, uh, Final question. After all these years with your head stuck in the codex, what what has what what is this life taught you? Oh my what god! What is the one lesson that you think uh, oh you're gonna god. you're gonna tell tell uh, leave your children with, or leave our listeners with? Oh and if your god. children decide to listen, <laughs> they're totally welcome. Uh, and you're dying. Uh, uh, I, uh, uh, I'm sorry. I can only give. Uh, uh, yeah, nah, nah. I'm, I'm, I'm. Uh, all I can think about it like, uh, like famous last words. Now, like <laughs> they, could, they couldn't hit an elephant at this dist.
Litmus Media.